Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. Hi guys, welcome to this episode of Arabiyat, the podcast that gives you news from Arab views. Thank you so much for joining me once again. And before I start this episode, I'd like to thank everybody who responded to my call for feedback in the last episode. I really appreciate it and I hope to keep receiving it because once again, your participation in this podcast is really crucial for its growth and development. So I'm gonna introduce my next guest here today. He's joining me from Detroit, Michigan, and in specific, Dearborn, Michigan. His name is Khalid Beydoun, and he's an associate law professor with the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law. He's also affiliated faculty at UC Berkeley. You may know Khalid from his very active social media presence. I found him through Facebook and Twitter. I noticed he was very actively posting and responding quickly to events that were happening um, that in regards to the Arab and Muslim experience in America. And I thought it would be cool to have him on the show to get some of his perspectives on a, a few issues. So on today's episode, we'll be discussing a lot of different things. We'll touch on the, the concept of Islamophobia, corporate and traditional media versus new media and social media. And then we'll kind of go into his forte, which is to explain how the surveillance state has truly expanded and in particular, Muslim Americans are being targeted. Um, and it's something that is alarming, but very little is known about it. And there isn't a lot of awareness about it. I did have an episode which kind of covered these things with Mustafa Bayumi. So we're going to follow up with that and kind of get Khalid's perspective. So without further ado, welcome Khalid. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you wrote a piece, among many pieces, about uh, the spate of stories where people speaking Arabic are removed from airplanes for saying words like inshallah, which is pretty much one of the most widely used words in the Arabic language. Can you talk a little about what's been happening lately and, and about is this a new thing? It's not new. I think what's what's happening now is obviously there is greater consciousness and awareness around Islamophobia. I mean, it's it's been marketed and branded in a way that, you know, has created more popular awareness around what's happening. And obviously social media, you know, has really shed a light on these incidents. But no, I mean, they this has been happening for a long time, surely after 9-11. Uh, but even before 9-11, where, uh, you know, there was fear of, you know, Arab hijacking. But now it's just being more honed in on a lot more closely than it's been before in the past. It's been honed in on by activists or like, what do you mean? Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it's a scary time in, in many respects for Arab and Muslim Americans in this country. But I also think about it also in terms of it being a renaissance, right? Because we have uh, academics like myself, we have activists, we have journalists like yourself who have, you know, really, I think, dedicated considerable time and like leveraged their platforms to uh, to showcase these issues, right? To, uh, to highlight them in, uh, in, in news media um, in a way that um, they haven't been highlighted before. So I think it's a credit to the work that's being done by not only Arab and Muslim Americans who care about these issues, but individual ally, you know, allies from beyond these communities who have brought this into popular uh, dis uh, discourse and discussion. So I want to stay on the media point because 33 groups described as Islamophobic had access to 
$205 million in total revenue between 2008 and 2013. Is social media going to be able to combat that corporate the corporate domination of the media as well as these other groups that are like very much entrenched and financed heavily? Yeah, so I think, you know, you have two kind of progressive developments in the media space that I think shed, uh, you know, or, or kind of give reason to, to, for optimism with regard to the issues that I think about and many of us care about. Um, so obviously you have the development of social media, which, you know, gives voice to individuals who are sidelined from the conventional corporate media space, you know, activists on the ground. I think the Black Lives Matter has, you know, kind of showcased the possibilities and power of how, uh, you know, everyday activists can use that platform to educate thousands, if not millions of people. But you also have the development, I think, of, uh, how could we uh, call this, but independent media factions that are kind of coming to the fore because of declining subscriptions and, you know, reliance on conventional cable, right? So I'm thinking about things like Newsy, and I'm thinking about things like Viceland, AJ+, for instance, which use the internet, you know, in devices like Roku and Apple TV, which younger demographics are heavily relying upon. So, I, you know, I read a recent study, for instance, that showed that individuals between the ages of 18 and 32 aren't subscribing to cable anymore and subscriptions to cable are declining. So they're consuming these new independent grassroots forms of media. And these, these new media platforms aren't wed to the kind of, you know, simplistic political narratives we see on Fox, obviously, but also on CNN. And if you tie that with what happened, for instance, with the Bernie Sanders campaign, and that was a demographic that really pushed the Sanders campaign forward, I, I think it creates great reason for optimism um, for the kind of news people are going to be consuming in the uh, the years to come. What you just said is true, and, and that is talked about as a positive development in media, but also the idea that we are subscribing to sites now that are purely feed us information that we want to see. And that could be, and you know, that we want to consume because now there's no like centralized media anymore, which has its pros and its cons, right? So could you make the same argument for people who are have bigoted views and are pro-Trump type of people for is there a large enough demographic of people to just be focusing on that type of media that is very much hateful and and inaccurate and there'd be some kind of complete disconnect in realities within the American population yeah I, I think you know you, you see that happening on the other side too with uh, the, uh, you know, this base and this, not only a base, but, you know, this, this kind of like swelling population of supporters that, you know, Trump has, and even before Trump, that the Tea Party was able to mobilize. So media is part of the problem, but it's also the way I think politicians and party leadership kind of mold the messaging to specific vulnerable demographics. And I, I, I call this population that supports Trump vulnerable because they're largely poor, working class, disaffected white voters who you know, are kind of plagued by the same ills, the economic ills that many poor people of color face. Okay, so in that case, I want to talk about you know, Arab and Muslim participation in the political process. We know that it's not high. I had an episode earlier this year. Uh, my father, George Houdi, who tried to go back to Palestine, was denied entry into Israel, and he was taken on this big charade of events and sent back to America. And um, I talked to our politician, Jackie Spear, our, our local um, congresswoman, Jackie Spear, and she said, I don't get 
participation from the Arab and Muslim communi- communities as much as, you know, other communities. And this is a problem because we're not involved in politics and kind of affecting change. Do, would you agree with that? I think it's changing. I think you see, you know, greater participation rates amongst um, Arab and Muslim Americans in recent time. There was a, a, a pretty compelling study done by CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations, in uh, in January that showcased how um, you know Islamophobia and this you know proliferating culture and climate of Islamophobia is mobilizing um, Muslim voters specifically um, to vote at uh, a clip higher than before and register at a clip mm-hmm. higher than before. And you know here in Michigan, um, I like to highlight the fact that um, especially in the Dearborn, Detroit area, Muslim voters voted in large number, and they voted in large number for Bernie Sanders. And if you really crunch the numbers. Um, demonstrate that they had a big, big hand in helping him um, win the Michigan primary. Writer wrote an article uh, for Newsweek um, earlier in the year discussing that. So I, I think, uh, largely speaking, that, that's still true. I think that the, uh, the political participation of the broader demographics is still relatively low, especially when you compare it to middle-class whites, for instance, um, and demographics that are more affluent. But I think it's also notable to, to, to also um, point out that it's on the rise as well. Would you agree with the, the, the idea or, the, you know, that, that Muslims and Arabs actually were largely campaigning behind Bernie Sanders, regardless of demo, uh, the age group? No, 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 I, I disagree with that. The really? care study, yeah, the CARE study shows otherwise, right? So the CARE study shows that the biggest percentage of, I mean, this again, specifically Muslim Americans, I don't want to conflate Muslim and Arab Americans as being one group because that isn't the case, obviously, right? Um, but Muslim Americans, broadly speaking, the biggest percentage um, of Muslim Americans were actually supportive of Hillary Clinton. Um, Now, there's great reason to believe that Muslim Americans at large um, uh, were more supportive of Bernie Sanders. But again, I think that that dissonance is because younger Muslim Americans who are more vocal, more visible on social media, uh, you know, are more likely to kind of attend a rally, more likely to attend a protest. That created the image, I think, the popular image that the majority of Muslim Americans were voting for Bernie Sanders. But the study showed that Muslim Americans um, were supporting Clinton at a higher clip. Um, And... Again, it's one study, like how accurate that one study is, we don't know. But it kind of aligns with the idea that, um, you know, more middle class uh, Muslim American, let's say elderly people or older people or middle aged people, they're not as vocal. They're not going to go on social media and, you know, um, throw on a rant about why people should vote for Hillary Clinton. And because, to be frank with you, I think a lot of Hillary Clinton supporters who were Muslim or Arab um, just, you know, kind of felt cautious displaying in public their support for Hillary Clinton for a range of reasons. So why would you say that Muslim Hillary Clinton supporters uh, were, you know, hesitant to express their support for her? Okay, so they, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to keep, keep it real with you guys. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. Um, I, think, I think a couple of things, right? So one reason why I think a lot of Hillary Clinton supporters who are Muslim and Arab American were reluctant to be vocal or public about their support um, for Hillary Clinton was, number one, they were faced with um, the most progressive candidate option in Bernie Sanders. And part of them, I think, felt that voicing support for Sanders, I mean, voicing support for Hillary Clinton with the option of having Bernie Sanders um, as the nominee, um, you know, 
would seem illogical. But again, it's also remember it's also key to remember that for especially for older and I would you know, kind of characterize them as immigrant Muslim American families. A lot of them still vote along uh, along lines of economic interest, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the kind of economic vision that Sanders had, for instance, was uh, you know obviously very socialistic, right? Um, you know, middle class and upper class families would be taxed heavily. Um, I think well-to-do Muslim Americans uh, feared that they feared these kind of socialist policies that a Sanders might bring into office, and kind of thought that you know Clinton, even though Clinton's foreign policy obviously was more hawkish. Even though Clinton's domestic policy with regard to surveillance was definitely more uh, nefarious, especially as she supports counter-radicalization. But I I think that Muslim Americans are like every other voter in the sense that um, many of us and many Muslim American and Arab American voters vote along individual rational lines um, and not always collective interests. Whereas younger Muslim Americans were really smitten with the Sanders campaign, the message um, and obviously the reform he wanted to make, uh, um, but the older folks weren't as vocal. As a Palestinian, for me, voting on foreign policy is a big deal. And I'm I'm surprised that older, even older generation of Muslims are not, I would think there'd be more of a consideration for foreign policy. War is intricately in, intertwined with the economy. I don't know if people make that connection because it feels like we vote either for domestic issues or foreign policy issues. And given sure. that, given our options, um, it's kind of hard to try to do both. So how is an Arab to vote when they care about what's happening abroad and such a major issue? Well, I, I, think, it's, I think it's changing now, right? I think that um, the, the stereotype is that Muslim, uh, Muslim Americans largely vote along um, foreign policy lines and that foreign policy is the primary kind of, uh, you know, basis in which Muslim Americans vote. So there's been, there's been some shift um, over the course of uh, these last generations, I think, where um, Muslim Americans were more steeped in America um, second, third, and fourth generation are—I think—they still care about what's happening abroad, um, but I think are more focused on what's happening here stateside. Uh, there, there are exceptions, obviously, right? I think that's that's a generalization that I just made. Um, there are exceptions, especially because you know Palestinian Americans, like yourself, obviously, um, are uh, give great primacy to what's happening in uh, in, in Palestine um, and you know the politics of the nation, um, specifically. Um, more so than I would say uh, many Lebanese Americans might, um, because uh, you know the crisis in Palestine and uh, you know is far more uh, dire. And I think the connections some people keep with their homelands are stronger. But I think broadly speaking, the, the general trend is that foreign policy is becoming um, less of a concern for Muslim Americans as we transition toward uh, younger generations. So are Muslim Americans concerned with, uh, you know, things like the U.S. Homeland Security's countering violent extremism program? You know, are they aware of the the surveillance of communities and, you know, and how widespread is that? Yeah, you know, I think so. For me, a lot of my research focuses on, you know, countering violent extremism and counter-radicalization policing, which, I, you know, I, I kind of, you know, frame as the new Patriot Act. I think that um, there isn't great familiarity and awareness of CVE policing within Muslim America. 
as of now. Um, when I speak to people in the community here, when I speak even to activists, they still don't know much about counter-radicalization. They don't know what it means. They don't know what it entails. Can you so, t- talk a little bit about what it is for our listeners? Yeah, so counter-radicalization policing is it's this new front of national security anti-terror policing that was formally launched by the Department of Homeland Security in 2014. And the way it, it functions basically is uh, for DHS to work very closely with law enforcement offices. So um, a DHS operative or an agent working really closely with the head of a police department in a city like Boston, Los Angeles, or Minneapolis, the three cities where counter-radicalization is policing. And the, the logic is to prevent individuals from becoming radical, radicals or terrorists. Um, and the way it works is that uh, police um, essentially build relationships with uh, people in the community, Muslim Americans specifically, uh, and they operate as informants. So they see these informants in places like mosques, schools, uh, community centers, places of business like halal butcheries, for instance, restaurants, universities, but also on the virtual space. Um, so if you're an activist, for instance, who talks about government surveillance or has you know critical views on Palestine, uh, and you put posts on Facebook, there's a, a and you have a big following. There's a pretty strong likelihood that a couple of your friends on Facebook or a couple of your followers on Twitter um, might be working for DHS. Okay, and is there any way to find out if you're being monitored? It's challenging, right? Because you can be monitored in a range of ways. Now, monitoring, um, you know, again, hop, you know, happens on the ground. It happens in in, in real space. Um, it can be, you know, again, if you're somebody who, uh, you know, attends a mosque, um, it could be a Jummah prayer. If you're a student activist at uh, UC Berkeley, it might be a new member of your MSA. Um, again, if you're somebody who's active on social media and you tend to be prolific with uh, your posts and you tend to be pretty strident or dissident in your views, it might be your followers. You know, kind of in the same way that your phone might be tapped if you're somebody who, you know, has a specific kind of political viewpoint and uh, following. You, it's, it's really difficult to know. Okay, but does this, the things that you just described, like I'm, a, I'm an Arab Christian, okay, so and I have a lot of friends who aren't even Arabs and they have really extreme viewpoints on the same things I do, um, and they're posting hardcore. Are they, is this just targeted towards Muslims or is it everybody who has these viewpoints that are critical of the government? No, it's specifically targeted towards Muslims, right? So because, or individuals, <laughs> it, might, it might be non-Muslims who the government might fear um, or perceive to be possible converts, right? So when we talk about counter-radicalization policing specifically, it is the specific fear that a, uh, a Muslim or a prospective Muslim is going to become a radical, enlist in a terror organization, and be mobilized to commit a terror act. So when we talk about counter-radicalization, it is specifically targeting Muslims. Okay, so are there any stories of people who have been monitored and like what happens to them if the government decides that they're a threat? Yeah, there's, there's a range of stories. I mean, there was this young guy, I forget his name, in Detroit maybe about two or three months ago who looked like he was, um, he had like psychological issues and he was going on websites that he shouldn't have uh, been going on. But the, 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 he was arrested uh, and, and prosecuted, and I think he's looking at uh, prison time now. There's been a range of stories out of Minneapolis uh, where Somali, young Somali men 
who were uh, traveling back to their country of Somalia, were sending funds back home, were essentially entrapped. So really quickly, and there'll be my last question on this topic, what is legal about this and what isn't? Yeah, so what is, so the illegalities of it are considerable and the legality of it, uh, you know, is, is, is dubious. We are kind of under this like broader umbrella of being uh, in the war, war on terror, which isn't a conventional war. But because it's branded a war, it enables the government, enables the executive power to kind of undertake uh, surveillance and scrutiny programming that otherwise uh, would be, you know, patently unconstitutional uh, if we were in a war. But in addition to that, obviously, uh, it infringes upon core civil liberties. It infringes upon, uh, above all, uh, the free exercise clause, the ability to exercise your faith as you see fit, which is the First Amendment. And it's the First Amendment for a reason. Um, individuals who might decide to wear their beard, uh, you know, wear the hijab, the headscarf, um, you know, practice um, Islam um, in specific ways, that's going to trigger, you know, automatic suspicion by the government. And so what, in your opinion, is the way for governments to legitimately, and this is a really big question, so let's just see if we can take it, but, you know, going back and looking at like why even ISIS was created to begin with and the situation and why even radicalization is a thing today very much directly ties to the actions of the U.S. government. And then we see the on the ground in the U.S. Muslims suffering the consequences of foreign policy and which kind of brings back the other point where, you know, if you don't pay attention to foreign policy issues in only focusing on domestic issues and your political participation, it kind of it feels incomplete. Right. So, I mean, in your opinion, like what can governments really do to actually combat real threats without impinging on civil liberties and just perpetuating stereotypes, Islamophobia, you know, fanning flames of fear? And, you know, how do we move forward from this? Yeah, so I think that, you know, obviously the state has, and one of its core functions is to protect the uh, the security of its citizenry, right? National security should be focal. It should be a concern of our government here in the United States, but also all governments, um, broadly speaking. And, you know, obviously I think that it would be illogical and dishonest for me to say that um, specific elements of, um, you know, obviously linked to, to ISIS or transnational terror networks don't pose a threat to um this country, but they've, they've posed a greater threat, obviously, to, um, you know, Muslims where uh, in their proximity. Um, but I think it's important to kind of look at the statistics um, which have been eclipsed by the stereotypes when thinking about how to, um, you know, attack uh, terrorism, but also how to frame terrorism, right? So, um, you know, one stat that I always, uh, you know, kind of like look toward when answering a question like the one you posed is, since 1982, 63% of all acts of mass violence in this country have been committed by white men, right? Mm-hmm. So when you, when you look at statistics like that, that demonstrate that the most threatening demographic to our citizenry has largely been domestic uh, in nature and uh, more specifically fits the profile of uh, a white male, and typically white, and not only individual white males, right? Not these lone wolf actors, um, that individuals like to point out, but I'm talking about individuals with ties to uh, white supremacist groups, um, individuals tied to neo-Nazis, uh, the KKK, um, really militant factions with really, you know, kind of subversive 
um, and racist ideology. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, for one, does a, you know a great job with their researching, uh, with the research showcasing this kind of threat. So what I say is, look, there are, there's obviously a fraction, there's obviously this sliver of the broader Muslim American milieu or the broader Muslim milieu globally is terrorist in nature, right? Or has specific designs to commit atrocity, whether it be in the United States, but also abroad. Let's police them. What percentage of past acts have been committed by individuals who fit that profile, right? Mm -hmm. And combine that with the demographic that we face here stateside that are, you know, um, shooting up churches, shooting up cinemas, shooting up uh, Sikh um, temples in Wisconsin and so forth, and kind of mold and shape our strategy in line with the statistical evidence we have before us. Now, the problem is the government's not doing that. DHS is not doing that. Counter-radicalization is not thinking about or targeting um, these white men who um, are committing 63% of these uh, mass violent acts, they're focusing specifically on Islam. And they're focusing specifically on Muslims. And this is um, just easier for them? Like, what is it that makes them want to focus so much on one group without instead of actually addressing why large segments of different societies are being radicalized? Because it perpetuates the broader, uh, you know, political narrative that I think enables, um, uh, you know, the, the kind of, industry needed for this country to thrive. And by industry, I mean uh, war abroad, right? For us to justify our engagement in uh, you know, various countries in the Middle East, um, um, Africa, um, talking about um, places like the Horn of Africa with Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram in Sub-Saharan Africa, obviously the, uh, the, the more well-known transnational networks in uh, the Levant, um, like ISIS and Nusra, um, the, the whole gamut, Hamas, Hezbollah, engagement with Iran. We need to kind of illustrate the idea that we have this primary geopolitical um, rival or antithesis that enables us to carry forward this, um, you know, war industrial complex abroad. Um, in the same way that we, you know, we see the vilification of, uh, you know, black and brown people here stateside, right? That you know enables us to carry forward the, the prison industrial complex, right? right. The, the criminal policing uh, complex here. You need this, this narrative, this compelling narrative of the Muslim boogeyman and the black and brown boogeyman to make these things possible. Thank you so much, Khaled. <laughs> I've kept you long enough. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I look forward to the, to the next opportunity to be on the show. Awesome. We'll have you in studio when you're in town. So Khaled Beydoun is an associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law, and he also currently serves as affiliated faculty with UC Berkeley um, Islamophobia Research and Documentation Project. You can follow him at Khaled Beydoun on Facebook. That's spelled K-H-A-L-E-D-B-E-Y-D-O-U-N. And you're pretty active on Twitter, right? At Khaled Beydoun. Yeah, at Khaled Beydoun. Yep, catches posts. He always responds pretty quickly to things that are happening. And um, I've, I've enjoyed having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, Linda. And that's all, folks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Arabiyat. Our theme song is by Muqata'a. The song is called Ahyat. You can listen to more of his stuff at soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. You can email us at A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T at kpfa.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next time, I'm Linda Khoury, producing this episode for you from KTFA Studios in Berkeley, California.